The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, uh, let's go ahead and begin our study tonight. If you would turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6. We're continuing our study of living for living in victory. And our entire study from the very beginning has been about the doctrine of sanctification. And I've spoken to you at times directly about that doctrine. And at other times, we've talked about the peripherals of it. But I do want you to understand that every lesson, when we talk about living for Jesus, that will have something to do with our sanctification. I also want to remind you of the great doctrine that we believe of justification by faith, that there is a point in our salvation when we are justified by our faith in Christ, and that's when we are declared that we are no longer guilty of sin, that we stand good with God because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, justification is a one-time forensic transaction that we can look back to and we can look back at that time and we can say this that's when I was justified when I put my faith in Christ I was justified and so no longer am I guilty and I'm never going to stand in judgment with God because of my sin and that is absolutely true of every born-again believer and along with that that doctrine uh, and our belief in Christ about justification there's also a point of complete sanctification, that we've been set apart to God in holiness, and were we to die even one minute after we have trusted Christ, we're just, we're as fit for heaven as, as if we had lived as a Christian all of our entire lives. Now, in each of those cases, when we talk about that type of sanctification, and we speak of justification, there is no hold that sin has on us. There aren't any eternal consequences for sin as far as the safety of the soul is concerned. But that's not to say that for Christians there aren't any consequences of sin at all. Because there are. There are consequences for sin in this life and there are also consequences in the life to come or in that time to come. Now, in our life, uh, sin hinders... Our joy of salvation, it makes us miserable, and that's because we have been made new creatures in Christ. We are a new creation in Him, and we simply cannot be satisfied with sin because God has designed us for holiness. We have the divine nature, that's how what Peter would say as he wrote about it. We have the divine nature, and so we have been made new like Christ. Now, sin affects us. If you truly are a child of God, sin will affect you. It will make you miserable. And if you're not upset by sin in your life, when you can't control sin in your life, then if, if that doesn't upset you, then you really do need to very closely inspect your faith to see if you really are in the faith. And then sin also has consequences in the life to come for believers. Did you know that? It does have consequences in the life to come. And it's not a matter, though, of, of losing your salvation. It's not a matter of um, whether you're actually going to make it to heaven or whether you're going to be unhappy in heaven. That's not what I'm saying. But there is the loss of eternal rewards. 
That is a consequence because of the sins that we commit right now. And you have to ask yourself, is the loss of eternal rewards an acceptable risk for a Christian? And if you ever come to the place where you say, well, heaven is such a good place, it's going to be so wonderful when we get there, what difference does it really make if I sin now? It's going to be so good. What difference does it make if I lose out on some of the rewards? Well, I'm not able to describe to you how God is going to deal with unfaithful Christians. I, I, I think, though, that a person that is not concerned about the loss of rewards, if he doesn't live for Christ in this life, then... If he doesn't care about that, he's probably not really a saved person. And that's because with salvation, God gives a desire in our hearts to receive Christ's commendation. To come down to the end of our lives and to hear him say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so sin does have eternal consequences or else Jesus wouldn't have sternly warned Christians about it. He wouldn't have told us that we need to live and to love him. The Apostle Paul in Romans 14 and also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 warned us that we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he said we're going to receive those things that, for those things that have been done in our body. Now I think that those are scriptures that we shouldn't ignore and you might want to test the Lord on those things. As I, as I said, I can't really explain to you exactly how God will deal with the Christian in eternity over these very things and what all the loss of rewards and what all of that means. But I can tell you this, that I don't want any part of finding out what it's about. Although I think in some ways, of course, I will. Now the incongruity of sin in the Christian life is discovered here in Paul's statement in Romans 6 verses 1 and 2. He said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And Paul's thinking it was just unimaginable that there was any Christian that would live a life of sin. Now he knows that they will, and he knows that it's true in his own life, but it's unimaginable that a Christian would choose that, he'd want to do that. He can't picture that a person who has been delivered from his old way of life would have a desire to go back and to live in that way again. Now to give you just a little bit of the background of the culture of Paul's time, there were various heresies that, that Paul contended with in that century, the first century, Satan was always trying to corrupt good doctrine. And one of the ways that he did was to mix paganism with Christianity. Of course, Catholicism has done that for centuries. Every, everywhere the uh, Catholic Church goes, it incorporates some of the heathen cultures that it encounters into its beliefs and teachings. But in Paul's time, there weren't any Catholics. There wouldn't be any for almost 400 years. But there were other heresies that were floating around that were precursors to much of the things that Roman Catholics believe. And whenever truth is mixed with a lie, you don't end up with a half-truth that it's okay to believe half. No, you end up with a whole lie. Whenever lies are mixed with truth, it comes out to be total lies. Well, Gnosticism... That was one of the lies in which Christianity was mixed with Greek philosophy. And there are many variations of Gnosticism. We don't have time to go into all of those. But there were some of them that said that sin doesn't have any consequences. It, it doesn't have any consequences on man's spirit. The body, they said, and the spirit are separate. And uh, sin affects the body, but sin is not really a problem for the spirit. 
And so they said that the body will die, and because, that they, di- because they didn't believe there is a bodily resurrection, they said that, well, the conclusion must be that you can live in your body any way that you want to live. Sin only affects the body. It doesn't affect the spirit. And so this body is going to go into the grave. It will pass out of existence. The spirit will live on without it. So you don't really need to worry about what's been done with the body. You're not going to see the body ever again. Well, Paul never allowed for this kind of body-spirit separation. And he never allowed that there would be such a distinction between body and spirit that he would say that neither one affects the other. And in this text, he emphasized that body and spirit relationship, and he's emphatic about it probably because of the problem of Gnosticism. Now look at verse number 12. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. There he says, the mortal body. And there's no mistaking here what Paul means. Sin is a problem. It is a fleshly problem that has a tremendous impact on man's spirit. Now, what our justification did was to take away our guilt of sin. Sin cannot condemn us, but justification didn't take away other consequences. It doesn't take away consequences that affect the quality of our Christian life and that ability to serve Christ to receive the best commendation. Well, to sum up a little about our discussion in the previous messages, this is the issue that that comes to the forefront when we're speaking of victory. Victory over sin is striving, is what we're striving for. And the scripture says that Satan is able to take us captive at his will. We've talked about that on Sunday mornings. He takes people into his domain, which is a domain of sin and of darkness. But then the scriptures tell us that the gospel is what translates us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're moved from one kingdom to another when we're saved. And the righteousness of Christ rules us. And thus we're not to act like we are still living in that kingdom of darkness. And to prove that we're no longer living there, there are certain demands that have to be met. Certain demands are put on the Christian life that have to be met to show that we are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. And we talked about that in the previous message, and that was the demands for living in victory. And we concentrated on two demands. The first was the demand to dethrone sin, and the second one was the command to enthrone righteousness. Now, Satan's kingdom, as you know, is characterized by sin. He's the god of this world. And every person who is in his kingdom and under his domain has sin that characterizes them. Sin rules a person who is in Satan's kingdom. So sin is his desire. And it's much more actually than a desire. Sin is actually the habit. Sin, sin is the, the nature of the sinner. It is actually the ruling disposition of him. But in Christ's kingdom, that ruling disposition has been changed. It's different. And so the habits of those who are Christians are different. Righteousness reigns. And that's why John said that the person who is born of God does not habitually commit sin. He said you cannot do it because your seed remains in you. That is, the Holy Spirit is in you. 1 John 3, 9 and 10, it says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin. Because he is born of God. Now, I've been over those scriptures many, many times. And what John is actually saying, he's saying that we cannot continually live in sin. It can't be the habit of our lives. 
And he says, in this, the children of God are manifest. This, what sh this is what shows whether you are a true child of God or a child of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. So what the Christian does is he replaces sin with righteousness. Righteousness rules his heart. And so the gospel demands that change from sin to righteousness. Sin must be dethroned and righteousness enthroned. Well, in the last lesson, we, uh, this is a couple of weeks ago, I think, we kind of just got our feet, maybe it's three weeks ago, I don't remember how long it's been now, but uh, we just kind of got our feet wet in the second part of the outline, and that was the, dy the dynamics uh, for living, dynamics of living for Christ. Dynamics are forces that are set in motion to affect change, and the dynamics of the Christian life are demonstrated in the real physical world, but they have their origin in the supernatural, spiritual world. I gave you an example of faith as a dynamic. Faith is not really the main point of our discussion, but it is a, a good place for us to start to help to understand the principle. We don't have any way of, of uh, qualifying faith. Faith is a supernatural thing, and so there isn't any scientists that can explain to you what faith is or how faith works. In Hebrews, you can read about many different things, supernatural things that were done by faith. For example, the scripture says, by faith, Enoch was translated. Now, if you were to ask a scientist to explain this, how that a person just disappears, that he's just gone, and he passed from the physical world through that barrier into the spiritual world, you ask a scientist to explain that, he's not going to be able to explain. And yet the Word of God says that's what happened to Enoch by faith. It also says that Sarah, when she was well past the age of bearing children, she had a child. I mean, she's so far past the age that all of the internal parts that, that uh, women need in order to have children, those things are dried up and withered away. And yet the Bible says that by faith, Sarah had a child. And so you ask an MD, explain that to us. How did Sarah have a child when she was so old, 90 years old? How did she have a child? Well, they can't explain that to you. It also says that by faith, the children of Israel passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. And have you ever read the explanations of how that happened? Uh, there's nobody that has an adequate explanation for how that happened. That's something that happens by faith. Now, Hebrews puts faith into the realm of mystery by saying that it is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And you think about that definition, your, your mind kind of goes squirrely just a little bit, and you say, well, even the definition of faith is mysterious. We don't really understand faith. We don't know how it works, but it certainly is a dynamic. Faith changes things, doesn't it? Your faith changes things, and it's a force that has to be reckoned with. Oh, you also ask those people in Jericho about faith, and they'll say, well, that's a pretty powerful thing. Faith moves God. Faith can cause the impossible. Faith is a supernatural thing, but it manifests itself in the physical. So faith as a, as a dynamic is what I'm talking about, and I could have made the entire message about faith. We know that song that says, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That's certainly true according to the Word of God. But we notice in this particular scripture that Paul never even mentions faith. Faith is in the background of everything that he says, but I'm not preaching about faith here because Paul doesn't mention faith in the scripture. So 
we're looking then at other dynamics that are found here. And there are other dynamics in the Christian life that affect a change that makes things different for us. Now, as we look at this passage, first and foremost in Paul's reasoning is the dynamic of unity. He's talking here about unity with Christ. It's about becoming one with Christ so that the power that's in Christ is the same power that is in us. Now, I hope that you understand this, that when you become a Christian, uh, whatever Christ is, whatever he possesses, is in you too. And that's because Christ is in you. There isn't anyone but a Christian that can have victory over sin because God alone is the only one who can have victory over sin. Only those in which God specifically works are able to overcome sin. That's an important point for us to remember about the world. We just can't expect that people are just going to stop sinning. The world's going to get better. Everybody's going to recognize what we believe and believe what we believe. They won't because they don't have the ability to do it. They can't turn around. They can't do anything about this because only the ones that God works in have the ability to turn around from sin and go a different direction. Now, we can see this, I think, in another way in the supernatural world when we talk about the rebellion in heaven. When Satan rebelled against God, the Bible teaches that one-third of Satan's angels rebelled against him. Well, what was it that kept the other two-thirds from doing that? Well, there's only one thing. They would have done the same thing that Satan did if God had not upheld them in their integrity, sealed them so that they couldn't fall. And he does that today. He keeps them from falling. But they would have done the same thing that Satan did. But he preserves them in holiness. Now, I want you to get this point because it shows us that it's not religion that conquers sin. There hasn't been any religion that's ever been able to conquer sin because no one, no religion in the world even deals with sin except the religion of Jesus Christ that has an atonement whereby God is satisfied for sin. It's the only way that sin is dealt with. God has to be satisfied. So the righteous God is satisfied that sin has been dealt with. Now, according to this passage, there are three ways that we can have union with Christ. First of all, Paul speaks of unity with Christ in his death. Verses 3 and 4. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism in the death. Well, here's our question. How are we unified with Christ in death? Well, the answer to it is the extinction of of our old life. Now, according to verse number 6, it starts with the crucifixion of the old man. It's the destruction of the body of sin. Now, let me say it to you in this way, that the old man, or the old nature that is in us, manufactures sin. That old nature is the sin factory. It's the sin producer. And then when we put our faith in Christ, we, we put that factory out of business. We stop it so that it can't produce its product. Now, if the body of sin is destroyed, the life force for that sin is snuffed out. And being dead, it doesn't get up and move around any longer. Dead people just don't get up and walk around. So when the old man is put to death, it can't go on in sinning. It can't do the old things that it did because it's dead. 
Now you look back at chapter 5 and verse 19, you see why it's dead. It says, for by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, he's telling us here that it's Christ's obedience to death, and that's the underlying reason why that believers, that we are experience, that we experience Christ's death, that's because we are in him. Now, that's the point that I made just a moment ago. The point is that what happened to Christ happened to us. So, the scripture, as Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So sin can't reign because the body in which sin works is dead. And so the dynamic force in that instance is death. The spiritual organism that produces sin is dead. Well, you say, well, that doesn't sound quite right. And the reason it doesn't is because... We're very, very prone to mix up our doctrine here and not understand which doctrine are we talking about. That's why I made a distinction at the beginning between our justification and our sanctification. Because the doctrine that I'm talking about now is the doctrine of justification. Justification sets us free from the dominion of sin, and in that sense, sin is over with for us. The body is dead when it's justified in that sense, or man, we're justified. We're no longer condemned by our sin because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, and that takes over everything. And so we don't come into any condemnation when we're justified in Christ, and therefore, in that sense, we don't continue to live in sin. So I don't want you to draw out from what I've just said that Paul says the old man has died, which means that the sin nature in you, which relates to our sanctification, that the sin nature in you has been destroyed and now you can never sin again. Well, we would never need scriptures like this if that was true. No encouragements to live victoriously are necessary if the sin nature has been completely done away with and it never bothers us again. So we have to be very clear to make our distinction in doctrines. Unity in Christ in his death means that God has provided us a means to justify us by punishing sin in us in a substitute and then giving his perfect righteousness to us. Now I don't intend to deal with that very much because that's not the main doctrine that we're talking about tonight. We're talking about our sanctification. But we do need to understand that justification and sanctification work together, but because they work together doesn't mean they are the same things. They're very definitely different doctrines, but you can't be sanctified without being justified, and you can't be justified unless you are also being sanctified. Now, going on, the second thing that Paul shows us is that there is unity in Christ's burial. He says, therefore, we are buried with him. That's our unity. We're buried with him by baptism into death. Now, Paul is not saying there that there is a transaction that takes place in the literal act of baptism. And we're not to do as many people do, and that's to take water baptism and say that it literally transforms us or that it actually does change a sinner into a saint. That's one of the earliest perversions of the gospel that, that came, uh, came along. And that was when people started changing baptism to be something that uh, helps you to be saved. And so they came up with the idea of baptismal regeneration. Uh, baptism is a sign of regeneration, but they made that sign the actual thing. 
Roman Catholicism teaches that today. Lutheranism teaches it. Campbellism also agrees with that. The only difference with them is they baptize adults, not infants, in order to wash away their sins. Well, Paul's not advocating here baptismal regeneration because that would just simply destroy everything he teaches about faith in Christ alone, that we're justified by our faith alone. And so he's not going to insert something here that tells us that we have to be baptized in order to be saved. So the spiritual significance of baptism is not its ability to affect a supernatural change in us, but the baptism is a visual picture of what has actually happened to us. That Christ was buried in the tomb, and in a spiritual sense, our life is buried with him. Our sins have been taken out of the way. They are put out of sight where the corruption of the sin in us is no longer seen. When I preached on Christ's burial from Matthew 27, you may remember that I referred to uh, John Bunyan's magnificent work, The Pilgrim's Progress, and Bunyan described how the main character, Christian, struggled to get the weight of sin off of his back. Now, if you've ever seen the illustrations of the Pilgrim's Progress, there's Christian, and he's making his way towards the celestial city, and he has this huge burden on his back that he can't get rid of. That's the whole purpose here. He's got to figure out how to get rid of his burden. And so in the story, Christian comes to the cross, and when he sees the cross, the burden of his sin falls off of his back and begins to roll down the hill and then falls into the sepulcher. And Bunyan said, it fell in, and I saw it no more. This is the same idea that we have expressed in this text, that our burden of sin was on Christ, but then our sin was taken away, and it rolled into Christ's tomb, and it was buried with him. And then when Christ came out of that tomb, the sins that were on him did not come out with him. All of that is left dead and buried in the tomb. All the sins are left behind, and what we're never to do is to return to that tomb and dig up all of those sins again. You see, God intends that the corruption of the old life is going to be gone forever. He put all of that out of sight, and we're not to drudge it up. So we should no more want to dig up our old sins than we would want to go into the graveyard, into a cemetery, and start digging around in the graves and pulling up old rotten corpses. When we were in, uh, in Canada a few months ago, you know, we took this really fantastic trip through British Columbia and Alberta. The scenery is absolutely magnificent. If you get a chance to do that, I recommend that you do. But there were some things that we saw that weren't so good. We were on one stretch of highway, and there were several deer that had been run over. And some of those deer had been there for a while, and their bodies were swollen. The gases of decomposition were building up, and it looked like the bodies were about to burst. And there were buzzards all over the place that were just having a feast. They were stopping there and they were, they were uh, sticking in their sharp beaks and they were pulling out the entrails of those dead deer. Well, you, how many, you wonder how many of us would pull over to the side of the road and we would shoo the buzzards over a little bit and we'd say, move over just a little bit if you will. And then we would stick our hands into those dead decomposing body of those deer, begin to pull out the intestines and put that into our mouths. Can you picture yourself doing that? Well, this is actually a picture that the Bible gives us of sin. If we really under, understood what, what sin looks like in the eyes of God, it's putrefying. The body of sin 
that Paul describes here is a dead corpse. It's a rotting corpse. And perhaps that will give you some understanding of why there were Old Testament laws that were very strict about people coming in contact with dead bodies. What God was doing was showing Israel a picture. He was showing them how horrible that sin is. Horrible uh, Sin is, is horrible enough, it's like that rotting corpse. And so the Bible said, you can't touch a dead body. And if you touch one, in order to be purified, it takes seven days before you can come back into the congregation of the people to bring your sacrifices and so forth. This is why they whitewashed tombs in the New Testament. They didn't do that in order... Uh, to make tombs beautiful, but they did it in order to make them visible, to make them seen, so that travelers that were on their way to Jerusalem for the feast days, they wouldn't accidentally stumble over one of these tombs and be defiled. If they did, all that trip that they made would be for nothing because they wouldn't be able to participate in the feast. And so the Jews would whitewash those tombs to make them uh, visible so people wouldn't miss the celebration. So the whole point is, you're not supposed to touch a nasty dead body because that represents sin. And so when we look at this, our, our old habits, our, our old speech, our impure thoughts, the revealing clothes that we used to wear, the lewdness of all worldly activities, all of those things are to remain dead and buried and we're never to go back and dig them up again. And that's because they are the rottenness of a putrefied dead corpse. So we have unity in Christ's death. And the dynamic is that God has supernaturally taken the defilement of our sin away. It's dead, it's buried, and dead and buried is where it's supposed to stay. Well, you know what comes next. If you have, if you have the, the burial, if you have the death and you have the burial, then we know something's going to come next. What's the third thing? Well, that would be that we have unity in Christ's resurrection. Verse number 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now in that passage, Paul used an expression that he never used anyplace else in the New Testament. He said, walk in newness of life. And newness of life is, is not so much about the character of, of life in Christ as it is about the principle of life in Christ. You see, once you receive Christ by faith, union with him commences a completely new life. And when you use that word new, that's not a description of the life. That is the life. It is new life. Now, a new life, a new life force uh, takes over when a person believes in Christ. Now, the best one example, I guess, that I could, that I could give you a good example, I think, is when an airplane uh, lifts off from the ground, there is a new dynamic that is introduced. A massive plane, these huge jet planes, are held to the ground by a force. And that force is gravity. Gravity holds the plane down to the ground. And that gravity has to be overcome before the plane can take off. And so the pilot thrusts the uh, levers forward, the power levers forward, he revs up the engine, the engines roar to life, and the, uh, the jet airplane takes, down, uh, takes off down the runway, it speeds up to 200 miles an hour, and then there is a new dynamic that takes over. And that new dynamic is called what? Aerodynamics, exactly right. The new dynamic is aerodynamics. And so what happens is this plane that's heavier than air 
is actually lifted by the air itself. The, the air passing over and over the wings and underneath the wings actually allows that plane to take off. Now, with our union in Christ in the resurrection, we could call that the aerodynamic that allows us to escape the weight of sin or that corruption that's holding us down in this life. Now, it's amazing when you think about a, a jet airplane, if you travel very much, uh, maybe you think about things like this, but you think about all the weight that's being lifted when that plane takes off. You have the weight of the plane itself. Uh, as I said, that's well, well, much heavier than air, isn't it? You have the weight of that plane itself. Uh, some of the jet airplanes, you know, 300, 400, I think some of them carry up uh, five, maybe 500 passengers they put on a plane, and they put all that luggage on the plane, and they very carefully calculate all of that to be sure that there's not too much weight for the plane to take off. Now the resurrection of Christ has power in it that's great enough that it takes care of all of the weight of sin. There, there's never too much sin for it to handle. It doesn't matter how lost the sinner is. When I, when I say how lost, I mean how bad the sins that he has committed. It doesn't matter how much baggage that he's carrying around with him. Christ's resurrection justifies from all sin, from the worst, from uh, the, all sins of the worst of sinners, and lifts them out of the worst of their depravity. It has enough power to do that. Not only that, but the resurrection was great enough to lift all the weight of all sins combined of people that trust in Jesus Christ. Now that dynamic power is enough to leave the world behind. It's enough to leave all the worldly influences, to leave all the desires, all the lust, all the pride, all the hatred of this life. That dynamic is a life-giving force that affects a powerful change in us. So Paul says we have the power to walk in new life. Now with all of that power that's available, the power to put sin to death, the power to keep sin buried, the power to resist sin's pull over us, it's no wonder that Paul says, how can we live in sin any longer? How can those of us that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Because you have all this power that's available. All the power that you need to get out of sin completely is there. God has provided that for you. So why are you still living in sin? And this is why Paul is telling us these things just don't add up. If you stop and consider the persuasive argument of what Christ did for you, you begin to understand how powerful is the death of Christ and his resurrection from the tomb that you put those things together and union in Christ enables us to have a new life that is nothing like that life that we had before. We do not have to go back into sin again. Now let me take you back to faith for just a minute. If you look at verse number 11... He says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, if you know this, and you believe that it happened to you, faith is what allows you to act on it. Faith is the thing that makes it real. That's the kind of faith that God gives in salvation. If you've got something less than that, if you've got a kind of faith that does not allow you to get rid of sin, then you don't actually have saving faith. Now, here is where I see that the false teaching of carnal Christianity is shot down because what's happened to us is that, in fact, we did die with Christ. And, in fact, we were buried with him in the tomb. And, in fact, we did arise with him 
And that doesn't leave any room. The reality of those things does not leave any room for carnal Christians. The victory that overcomes the world is our faith. And you think about this, what person is there who is a Christian that ever got saved without faith? There isn't one. When we become Christians, we have faith. And there is no other kind of faith that God gives except the one that delivers us from the power of sin. Now, there might be a faith that doesn't do that, but that's not the faith that God gives because God's faith is never a deficient faith. Well, there's a lot more that we can draw out of this passage and on that particular issue, but I need to move on give you some more observations. So let me just quickly give you two more dynamics and we'll be through. First is the dynamic of unity. Next is the dynamic of purity. This faith that we have that God gives is a purifying faith. This is the kind of faith that enables a change from what you are to what you never could be. Verse 13 says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So you have been enabled to yield your body that was once used for unrighteousness to be repurposed as an instrument of righteousness. Now take your Bible, if you will, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want to show you how powerful that this dynamic is, the dynamic of purification. What can God do to purify you from the worst of sins? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, those of you that know 1 Corinthians well, you know that Paul is dealing with uh, very immature Christians, dealing with very immoral Christians, as a matter of fact, and a lot of trouble in that church. And so he writes a lot about sin in 1 Corinthians. In verse number 9, he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, I don't have time to go into this particular aspect of this, but Paul is writing all this. You're sanctified, you're justified, so what in the world are you doing sinning? Uh, anyway, he said, you used to do these things. This is what your life used to be. Now, that's a very horrible list of sins, isn't it? And we would read that, and then we would say, well, you know, I've never been involved in those kinds of things. You probably have been, won't admit it. But let's say that you haven't actually been involved in any of those things, these things that are mentioned here, and that's okay for right now because it's not going to change what I have to say to you at all. Perhaps you haven't been involved in all of these things, but you would say, my sins are lesser sins than these. And if you judge your sins to be lesser than these, you still know this, that your sins are bad enough, aren't they? That your sins were bad enough to condemn you for, to hell and you need Jesus Christ to save you from them? So you look at that list of sins, you say, well, I haven't done that, but what I have done is bad enough to send me to hell. So if God can justify from these great sins that are in this list, and these Corinthians were justified from them, then can't you be justified from the lesser ones? If they can overcome the greater ones that are mentioned there, and you say, well, I don't do those things, well, then can't you overcome the lesser sins that you do? I see you're guilty either way. You're going to go to hell either way if you're not purged or purified from these sins. 
But we also notice this, that God doesn't just only purify instruments of unrighteousness, but he also takes those instruments and he switches them, he repurposes them to to righteousness, from unrighteousness to righteousness. He doesn't leave them alone. He doesn't leave them neutral. He takes them over into the realm of righteousness. Now, he sanctifies those instruments and makes them holy. We well, say, what instruments are you talking about? What do you, what do you mean? Well, I mean eyes. Eyes that used to like to look at the wrong kinds of things now are repurposed to read the Word of God. Ears that used to listen to the filthy lyrics of rap music and suggestive filth of country music, for those of you non-rappers, the country music, now those ears like to hear the sweet songs of Zion. Mouths that used to curse are now mouths that give praises to the Lord Jesus Christ and give people the gospel of peace to dying sinners. Now that happened to you, didn't it? You did get that, didn't you? Your body has been repurposed, hasn't it? I don't hear any amens. All of you should be saying amens because why? Your mouths have been repurposed to glorify God. No one in this room is a sinner any longer, are you? Oh, okay. Listen to this. Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now there's that old dead thing again. And you have to ask your question, which are you? Ask yourself this question, which am I? Am I the rotten, stinking corpse? Am I dead or am I alive to the righteousness of God? That's what purity, that's the dynamic of purity in the Christian life. It changes you from the worst sinner that you could possibly be into a righteous saint of God. Now thirdly, very quickly, is loyalty. The dynamic of loyalty, that is joining ourselves to Christ and being loyal to him. Verse 18, Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. There's an old song that we used to sing. Uh, We haven't sung it around here for a lot of years, but I think most of you probably know it. It says, From over hill and plain there comes a signal strain. Tis loyalty, loyalty, loyalty to Christ. Its music rolls along. The hills take up the song of loyalty, loyalty, Yes, loyalty to Christ. On to victory, on to victory, cries our great commander on. We'll move at his command, we'll soon possess the land through loyalty, loyalty, yes, loyalty to Christ. What about that loyalty to Christ? Well, you look at the word servants in verse number 18. That's a word that's very difficult for many people. Uh, The Greek word here is doulos. It means a, a bond servant. It means a slave who is owned by a master. But why do we become servants? Why do we become bond servants of Christ? Well, if you remember in the first message, I said that there are many people who call Romans chapter 6 the declaration of emancipation, that it's, that it's freedom from sin. In one of the uh, city parks in Washington, D.C., there's a monument there that's in the memory of Abraham Lincoln, and at Lincoln's feet, there, there's a liberated, grateful slave that's crouching down before him and looking up at him. And the caption on the monument explains that this was a memorial that was bought and paid for solely from the contributions of liberated slaves. They're grateful for their freedom, and so they made uh, this monument, they paid for this monument, and they show a slave at the feet of Lincoln. 
Well, Christians have been liberated from a much greater bondage than that. We, we have been delivered from the death of sin. We've been set free to the liberties of heaven. And there's a new dynamic, a bond of loyalty that binds us to Christ. Now, you think about that slave crouching at the feet of Lincoln. Well, there was, there's a man that would, because of what Lincoln did, or whatever he perceived that Lincoln did, that he owed his freedom to him. And, and so, whatever Lincoln would want him to do, then that's what he would do, because he wanted to be loyal to the one who set him free. Well, when Christ gives us a greater liberty than that, one that we can't even really express with words, then what's that going to do with this as, to us as far as how we're going to respect what he wants from us? Well, we're going to give him undying loyalty, aren't we, because of what he's done for us. Now, we actually have a picture of that in Exodus chapter 21, if you want to, want to turn there, and we'll, uh, we'll finish up here with this scripture. Uh, Exodus chapter 21, and, and this kind of just shows you the kind of dedication that a servant would have to the one who's done so much for him and who loves his master so much. Exodus 21, in uh, verse number 2, If thou buy a Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve. Now, let me, let me just mention very quickly that it's dealing with Hebrew servants because um, you, you wouldn't think you'd normally be dealing with Hebrews having slaves, maybe slaves of another nation, but not slaves among the Hebrews. And so God gave specific laws that that uh, if a man had to go into slavery, if he indentured himself because of financial problems, wherever it might be, that he didn't have to remain a slave forever, but he was to be set free. In a certain period of time, in seven years, he's supposed to be set free. So it says, if thou buy a Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master hath given him a wife, and she hath borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and shall, he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him unto the judges, he shall also bring him to the door, or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever." And there we have a great picture of the Christian. The true child of God loves his master. He wants to obey him. He wants to serve him forever. And so he gladly goes to the doorpost and says to his master, bore my ear through with an awl because I want to serve you forever. We become loyal to Christ and to Christ alone. And so we serve no other master. In another song, it says... Uh, uh, Living for Jesus, I think, is this song this quote comes from. I own no other master. My life shall be thy throne. My life I give henceforth to live. O Christ, for thee alone. Well, what is it that we hope to achieve by these dynamics? Unity and purity and loyalty. Well, what we hope to achieve is victory. These are things that lead us to victory. Now, we're going to have a struggle with sin all of our lives. But sin does not have to defeat us. That's because we have all the resources that we need. That's given to us at the cross. It's given to us in the death, in the burial, and in the resurrection of Christ. And so we have been joined to Christ by faith, and that faith is sufficient to carry us through all the way to the end. And so we say with Paul, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and uh, the truths that we can glean from it. And uh, Lord, I do pray that everyone is able to follow what's been said tonight. And we see just a tremendous victory that's been won through what Christ has done for us. That when uh, he died for us and when we were buried with him, when he arose from the grave, he incorporated all of those things into what we are. And the same victory that Christ achieved over death and over sin is the same victory that we're able to achieve in him. So Lord, I pray that every member of Brian Baptist Church would not stand back with excuses and say, well, I had to do this. I have no other way around this. I have to live this way. No, we don't. We are enabled to live holy and righteous lives for you. We've been, that's been given to us as our purpose to serve you and glorify you. Lord, we do pray you'd help us to do that every single day of our lives. Help us as we leave this place to not only take what we've heard here and just say, well, that's pretty good information, but to take it out into the world and use it every day to live for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.